Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and it is Thursday, October 29th, 2020. Joining me in the studio today here in Seoul are Professor John DeLury and retired Lieutenant General John N. Baum. John DeLury is a historian of modern China and an expert on U.S.-China relations and Korea Peninsula affairs. He teaches Chinese studies at Yonsei University in Seoul. He was last on our podcast on episode 48, almost exactly two years ago. Welcome back, John. Thank you, Jacko. It's so great to be here. Retired Lieutenant General John N. Baum entered the Korean Military Academy in 1977. From April 2015, he was the Deputy Commander for the 1st Rock Army. He retired from active duty as of July of 2016. He was last in our podcast on episode 66 in April 2019. Thank you for coming back on the show, General. Thank you again. We are recording this episode just a few days before the United States picks a president, either four more years of Donald J. Trump or four years of Joe Biden. We don't know how it'll go, but I'm sure that each of us has his or well, his own predictions and expectations. So we'll talk about what could and should happen under uh, both presidents. Let's get some general questions out of the way first. Should the U.S. policy on North Korea always be part of an overall East Asia strategy, or should it be sui generis, a thing unto itself? Who'd like to kick that off? Well, as a Korean, I would like to see uh, Korea as a standalone issue but unfortunately, every time that Korea comes up, it's about North Korea. Mm. And now it's about North Korea nuclear uh, weapons and the threat that it poses uh, to the United States. And as a Korean, you know, there are, there are uh, regional threats, including nuclear weapons, that might not affect the United States uh, or the American continent, but does affect me right now. And it's uneasing. Also, again, because the, there's so much focus on North Korea and its nuclear capability, it feels to me that uh, we don't see the real opportunities or the risks on the Korean Peninsula because they don't think about uh, South Korea, which is, which is a partner in this whole deal and a very uh, important partner. Uh, one way to think about it, I think, is we look back at the pattern of U.S. policy on this. Um, it's been hard to get that balance right, you know, because I would say in general, you know, if you're in the United States, uh, you have to have a bigger regional strategy. At the same time, you have to recognize there are uniquenesses to the North Korean problem, which is a significant problem in the region. And a lot of the things that would work with other countries just don't work with North Korea because of its particularities. So I think if we look back, I think we could fault the Obama administration um, when it came in, I think, you know, it was so focused on the region, uh, on an Asia Pacific policy, that there wasn't enough attention to the particularities of North Korea. I mean, uh, these old name from the past, but Kirk Campbell uh, was determined not to be like his predecessor. You know, Chris Hill joked he was Assistant Secretary of State for North Korea, uh, and, and Kirk Campbell did not want that to happen, you know, which, which made sense as a correction. But I think there was a degree of overcorrection. Mm. And then we saw the opposite, you know, under Trump and the Trump administration, it was all North Korea. Mm. And, you know, they, they were in 2017 and 18 uh, to a fault consumed with North Korea and, and uh, neglecting so many other issues or mishandling other issues. So I think, you know, for the next administration, surprise, surprise, you got to get the balance, you know, and it's not an either or. Yeah, I agree. But again, I, I am as a... Cur as a South Korean, 
it's always disturbing that I find myself having to try to get the attention of the United States. Uh, the United States is a very important ally to us, especially in security. And it is in my best interest for the United States to have a, a good understanding of Korea. And yet, it's difficult even to get their attention to focus on South Korea as well as North Korea. And that's very, very, very disturbing for me as a South Korean. So mm. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's, it's almost like uh, the, there's three sort of potential settings. It's one looking only at North Korea, uh, or it's looking uh, at East Asia as a whole, uh, or it's also looking at South Korea. So that three different things coming into play there. Uh, John, um, as an American, what do Democrats and Republicans have in common when it comes to Korea policy or North Korea policy? That's tough. You know, the dividing lines I see in American thinking about North Korea um, don't necessar necessarily follow party lines very well right now. It's really been scattered, uh, especially because Donald Trump pursued maximum engagement. I mean, mm. you could call it radical engagement at a certain level of summetry. And he carried a lot of the Republican Party along with him, you know, whether they liked it or not. Uh, they were sort of captive to that, and they had to either cheerlead for it or not criticize it. Democrats, because of their political you know, role as the opposition, mm. but also in line with some of their general attitudes towards North Korea, uh, became even more pronounced in criticizing mm -hmm. engagement, even though, and we can get into this, I think, at a deeper level, Democrats kind of by nature... Uh, want to talk to the adversary, you mm. know, they, they want to pursue actually some of the things that the Trump administration was able to pursue in 2018, they probably right. want to do. So it's really, it's tough to answer that, that question, uh, because it, it, in a way, I guess there are certain elements that are commonly held, but I would say the field is really scattered right now. You know, Democrats and Republicans don't have clear positions uh, on North Korea, is, I would say. Can it then be said that... Um, the thing that the Democrats and the Republicans have in common is that it really depends upon who the president is. Right? Their policy on North Korea is entirely dependent upon who their leader happens to be at that particular time, rather than having a, a fixed uh, platform that, that lasts through successive terms. I, I think there's some of that. I mean, again, I think there are some underlying tendencies among Democrats. Like if we look at the Senate might be a good place to test this a mm -hmm. little bit, you know, and look at senators on the Democratic side versus the Republican side and kind of where they come down. I, I mean, I'm, I, I hesitate to agree completely with that, Jacko, because I have seen ways in which, you know, Republican senators who we sort of know didn't like the summits, didn't like, you know, palling around with Kim Jong-un, who, who likes sanctions, who thinks that's really the way to go, the toughness and the maximum. Uh, pressure. They subtly, they didn't want to call out Trump, uh, but they were not enthusiastically doing things that you could do in Congress to help to support that process, to backstop that. You know, so I, I think there's still a, a tension there between um, some of the underlying tendencies uh, versus whether it's their guy or their gal uh, in the White House or not. Uh, General John, does South Korea get enough input into U.S. policymaking on North Korea as an alliance partner? And does that differ from U.S. president to U.S. president? 
I think it's different. And the most important thing is the level of trust that one can build. And the burden of trust is upon the weaker party, which is the South Koreans. And I'm a little concerned whether the uh, people in government really realize what that is. You know, in the end, people are human beings. It's all about emotion. And if you don't like the other person, I mean like, mm. it has nothing to do with policy. Or If you don't like the other person, it's not going to be persuasive. And I think those fundamental elements about human nature needs to be something that the South Koreans really need to understand. And that's how you approach the Americans. Uh, I find that most Americans, at least eight out of 10, are sincere, God-fearing people. And to talk to them that way and to approach them that way is critical. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, my government uh, past governments and even the current government seems to not understand the importance of this approach. That's where I feel that I don't think that South Korea is getting the kind of uh, understanding in Washington, D.C. And then there's the spectrum of how different it is, uh, the perceptions that you see in Washington, D.C., or in you know the Pacific area, or, in, or in, uh, on the Korean Peninsula, the Americans here. And so the, 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 the gap perception within the United States itself is quite daunting, in mm. my view. How would you characterize the uh, Moon-Trump relationship, uh, the personal, interpersonal relationship? I don't think it's that great, although you know, they're not throwing stones at each other. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's no golf outing. Mm. There are no, the, there, there's no private dinners where they're talking one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. And uh, that's where we should have uh, we should have put more focus. Now, Mr. Moon has uh, uh, has great revenue. You know, his family was saved by Americans yeah. during the Korean War. Um, his entire life, when he was pursuing uh, democracy and fairness on the Korean Peninsula, uh, for, for the most part, the U.S. government supported that those endeavors. And I think uh, we we missed a lot of that opportunity that we could have had. Mm. John, any uh, thoughts on that? Would you agree that, that they have an okay relationship but not a great one? There's no evidence of a close personal mm. political relationship. You know, we saw that with Barack Obama and Im Young-bak for some reason. It's a little mysterious to me, but they hit it off. Huh. And Barack Obama said that. You know, he's one of, when he was asked, who are your friends out there hmm. uh, among world leaders, he mentioned Im Young-bak. And you could see elements of that. Uh, and I agree with General Chun about the, of course, it's still constrained by national interest, obviously, in all these structures. But that personal element can, can be important. Uh, and there's been no sign that Moon Jae-in and Donald J. Trump connect that they have chemistry hmm. and there have been some some uh open examples where they they really don't connect would it be going too far to suggest that uh, donald j trump has better chemistry with uh kim jong-un definitely <laughs> yeah. really there's almost i mean i don't know how you would dispute that <laughs> the, i mean he and he's made quite a thing of that. I mean, if you listen to his rallies, he he's played it up, you know, right. uh, love letters. Love and letters. We fell in love. What is so interesting, and so this might move it in a slightly different direction. Mm. One thing that's fascinating me about North Korean statements on the relationship with the United States, including Kim Jong-un himself and, and quite systematically among senior people in, in the government, 
is they they consistently make this distinction. Mm. Actually, the distinction we're talking about between personal relationship uh, and and national bilateral relationship. Mm-hmm. And they do this in a way I don't think a lot of people appreciate. Um, they always say, yeah, our leader gets along with with the president and, we, and they're respectful about Trump and they appreciate that. But then the next thing they say is, but the personal relationship is not going to fix the relationship between our countries. And these two men can have a good personal chemistry and that doesn't fix the problem. You know, so they actually keep returning to the opposite side of this coin, which is that, you know, that is necessary, but not sufficient. It's not enough, especially in, it may be enough with North Korea, but it certainly doesn't work in the United States that if the president likes you and particularly this president likes you, that doesn't fix your bilateral relationship. Mm. You know, so even if if Moon and Trump had played more golf, I mean, we could use the case of Japan where where uh, Abe Shinzo clearly mm-hmm. did pursue aggressively that mm-hmm. kind of strategy. Did that get a lot the more Mar-a-Lago for Japan? Strategy. You know, uh, did how much more did that get for Japan? Xi Jinping and and Trump had some level of personal connection better than with President Moon, mm. but did that? What effect did that actually have in where U.S.-China relations went and are going? Okay, but the other side of the of the coin, of course, is that despite any lack of uh, personal uh, cordiality between the two. Uh, there is this alliance relationship between the U.S. and the ROK, and, and and that leads to some level of policy coordination. In fact, there was a what a recently created body. Uh, what do they call it? The Coordinating Committee or something other. How's that going? How is the uh, what is the level of coordination between the U.S. and and Korea um, on North Korean issues in the last year or two? You know, I'm out of government, but it seems to me there's a lot of talk or plans to talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if there's listening though. They seem to be very truthful on their positions, but uh, it seems they're not really, you know, accepting what's being said and just listening to things that they're they want, mm-hmm. and then brushing aside all the difficult questions for a later time. And it's fine for a, an old guy like me mm-hmm. because you know I've lived my life, but. For the next generation, I'm really concerned about the decisions that are not being made right now. A couple of examples. The North Korea policy for denuclearization. Okay. Let's face it. The North Koreans uh, are saying that they're not going to denuclearize. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do now? And and we really need to think about what what options that we really have, not yeah. not what we want to do. John. You know, you mentioned that committee. When I saw that news, it, it made me uh, worried because at least within academia, you know, when we can't really agree on what we do, we always form a committee. <laughs> and it really it kind of, that's the death, the death knell of action. So, so does the military. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with that committee, but, uh, you know, coordination by committee. I do think itself is probably indicative of something. I think what it's indicative of is just that, that there hasn't been much to cooperate on. I mean, vis-a-vis progress with North Korea, you know. Uh, I think if we extend the chronology and look back at 2018, actually, I would give pretty good reviews to the two sides. And um, that was that was some high-wire diplomacy. Oh, 2018, yeah. Yeah, uh, when there was stuff to actually work on, when both sides were actively engaged with the North Koreans mm. and really did need to work hard to keep coordinating. I mean, uh, we've talked about this before, but if you look at getting into the fall 
and South Korea basically negotiating directly with North Korea on the uh, the CMA, mm, you know, comprehensive military agreement. military agreement in the September. Uh, 2018 Pyongyang Declaration, that was getting into nitty gritty, you know, that was affecting real things on the peninsula. And, you know, from, uh, I could only follow it from the media reports, uh, there was some tension there. Uh, and, you and mean there, between America and South Korea? Yeah. Mm. And yet I think when the, the dust settled, they, they worked it out, they figured it out uh, kind of responsibly. You know, these are independent sovereign countries that are, that are closely aligned, but also, you know, got to keep moving in their own uh, regard. And so I would point to that as not perfect, but when you're doing real diplomacy, you know, it, not everything can be easy. There can be some tough spots. And I think actually the, the alliance came through the 2018 diplomacy uh, quite well. Uh, but, you know, again, the key is that there was something to do. You know, they're working mm -hmm. on something. And I think if you look at really since Hanoi, it been nothing, to, you know, there's there's nothing to do. And the inter-Korean stuff obviously has gone totally dead and quiet. Well, in terms of inter-Korean uh, policy, actually, I wanted to ask, uh, General, to what extent is South Korea able to choose an independent path to pursue a North Korea policy regardless of what American policy is? Before I answer that, mm -hmm. I just want to make clear that during the discussions of the Comprehensive Military Agreement, uh, the U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula were consulted, and they were very supportive. And if you look at uh, comments made by the U.S. commander on Penn for the past couple of years, you can, you can see that he has acknowledged the fact that the CMA has worked for stability on the Korean Peninsula. So I think the, the, this, the, the reports about uh, dissension within the alliance concerning the CMA was not very accurate. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it would be unwise to do so. And I think uh, the, the United States is fair. And it's a matter of, are we able to put our case uh, in a logical manner to persuade the Americans to see it from our point of view? And we've seen this uh, work before. The sunshine policy mm -hmm. wasn't very popular, but the United States, you know, was very supportive. Now, I'm very concerned that some Koreans think that the United States is against, you know, uh, inter-Korean dialogue or or exchange. Have they ever said that? You know, we we Koreans are able to do all the humanitarian stuff and all that. It's my understanding that the North Koreans don't want all our aid or mm -hmm. all our, you know, uh, exchanges. So uh, we need to think about who's really causing all of this hindrance. It's not the Americans. It's not the United Nations Command or anybody uh, outside the Korean Peninsula, in my view. I want to go back to you mentioned uh, if Korea is willing to pay the price, uh, it can pursue its own independent policy towards North Korea. What kind of price are we talking about here? Let's not just think about the United States. Mm -hmm. China is very intimidating right now. Economically, we're very tied with the Chinese. With the United States, it's security. If we do one thing, it might cause uh, disadvantages with our relationship with the Chinese. If we do something else, it might cause disadvantages with the United States. So uh, it's very obvious, economics and security. But in the end, uh, we need to think about 
what's in the best interests of the Korean people. And I think, you know, uh, as, as a good politician uh, is there and voted in to make these hard decisions, they need to make them. You know, the buck stops here. John, you're a Chinaman. Uh, so we've just had the, the specter of, uh, of a threatening China raised by General John. So I should turn to you and say, how do you see that uh, the, the South Korean awkward triangular relationship with both America and uh, China at the same time? Well, um, I guess my thoughts are still a little bit on the previous question, if mm-hmm. I can, can jump in on that. Sure. Uh, okay. So about the independent policy of, uh, of South Korea towards inter-Korean relations. Yeah. Um, because, you know... I. I mean, it, it's not um, in South Korea's interest, I don't think, to approach it in that sense of kind of a declaration of independence and we're going to go our own way. And uh, as the general says, the price would be things like goodbye USFK and, and alliance. And Got the next you, question. Have you been looking at my notes, John? <laughs> Got a peek uh, if you really want to pursue that. But, you know, at the same time, I'm not sure I agree uh, that the United States hasn't played a constraining role. This year is hard to judge because of the pandemic. Mm. North Korea has gone into a very extreme uh, posture of they don't want anyone's help, you know, but that's not just South Korean groups. So I wouldn't say that's a political uh, message to South Korea. International aid organizations that normally have good access, mm. they can't do stuff either. If you look at, at 2019, I think might be a better test case and you know, I think that the Moon administration, if they had, if they could just ignore the United States, just ignore it, I think they would have moved on bigger ticket economic cooperation type of stuff. You mean reopening Kaesong? There's a back list. To Kumgang Sun yeah, Park. I mean, you know, whatever was on the USB that uh, <laughs> the President Moon gave Chairman Kim. I mean, we know that their philosophy of this and their strategy includes. I mean, they want to get to the bigger transformative but economic they being stuff. The North, the, North no, the moon, oh, the moon government, ah. you know, they were constrained. I mean, they constrained themselves. I think President Moon was quite self-restrained. He made a choice. We're not going to get out ahead of the Americans. And so by, I think, the measure of what their real strategy toward the inter-Korean transformation involves, they, they, they kept it in line with the signals that they got from Washington, mm. which is, let us negotiate this stuff. Don't move. Hold back. Mm. Don't move. And, you know, I'm not faulting that choice. And as the general said, it's not just about the United States. I mean, let's say they said, okay, we don't care about Washington. We're still going to move on this stuff. Well, you get into sanctions that are mandated at the United Nations. And so now South Korea has to go without U.S. support, right. but to the U.N., to the Security, Security Council, Council and yeah. lobby and say, here's our logical case right. for why we actually should do this. And maybe they could do that or, or maybe they couldn't. But that's a tall order. I think the, the first wouldn't the first sign of even thinking in that way have been the raising of South Korea's unilateral May twenty fourth measures, and and we didn't see any of that, right? I, I, at no stage did we see the Moon administration actually lifting the uh, the measures that Im Yong Bak put in place uh, after the uh, after the Chonhan sinking. As long as uh, we want to have. The United States commit their sons and daughters mm. to the Korean Peninsula. We need to respect the United States's opinion. And I think before all these great ideas come before the public, I think it's very, very important that the conceptual idea is presented to our American friends and to see what they think. 
I, I really think that's important. And if we, and if we do that, I believe that we would be able to do a lot of the things that we wanted to do or that we believe is important to inter-Korean relations. And that brings me very neatly to my next question, which is, is it likely that any U.S. president in the next 12 years, I'm giving it three terms here, uh, would decide to withdraw most or all of the U.S. troops from Korea? Three terms. I can't even imagine what the end of next week is going to look like (laughs) as presidential terms. But uh, so in the next 12 years, Mm. is there a world in which you have complete USFK withdrawal? Maybe not complete, but let's say, you know, 75% or more. I mean, we start haggling on the numbers, but I I can imagine a significant, let's just say a significant withdrawal. Absolutely. The current president, Mm. uh, President Trump, has been quite open about the fact that he thinks it's not in America's interest to be here. It's in South Korea's interest. And the United States might continue to do it if they'll pay for it, but they got to pay a lot more money. Mm. And that negotiation has been drawn out and they've kind of dodged the bullet so far, but it's an annual negotiation. I don't know that if Donald Trump is reelected, he's going to sit by for four more years of this. Mm. And I can certainly see uh, him, you know, just like after Singapore, he said, that's it, no military exercises. Mm. Uh, I could see him saying, okay, now I really mean it. I'm not saying at the rally. I'm signing this right. executive order, and maybe he gets in a fight with Congress and all kinds of resistance. But there's a world in which it happens. Mm. General John, if most or all of uh, USFK were withdrawn from the Korean Peninsula, what should South Korea do? Well, for one thing, it would make uh, guys like me very concerned about the security. Not because South Koreans are militarily unprepared or unready, but it would give the wrong kind of signal to the North Koreans. It's as, it's as if we are tempting the North Koreans to do something, as it happened in 1949. And we all know that within six months of Americans withdrawing then, a war was on the Korean Peninsula, which cost the American people hmm. 37,000 lives. So let's hope history does not replay itself. The, the South Koreans, we would probably have to take a big hit. Let me be very truthful. In 49, when the Americans were leaving, we asked for weapons, mm-hmm. especially tanks. Yeah. And the Americans said, well, tanks can never be operated on the Korean Peninsula because of the terrain. Mm-hmm. Well, the North Koreans right. had 242 tanks. And South Koreans remember this number because we had to, you know, use suicide yeah. teams to get rid of these human uh, bombs. Yes. Yeah. If the if if USFK were to withdraw in a big size, I as a Korean would ask the Americans, look, we want a deterrent uh, that is capable or similar to the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, short of nuclear weapons. Mm. Anything, any capability that Japan has right now Uh would be something that I would seek. And I think it would only be fair that the United States would provide that. And President Trump has already said that he has, he seems to have no great uh, problem with South Korea having nuclear weapons. That that's something that we need to uh, think about. Should Complete, verifiable, and and irreversible denuclearization of North Korea remain the goal for U.S. policy on uh, on North Korea. John? 
CV idea. I, I wasn't expecting that. I know no one that. talks about it anymore, <laughs> but uh, in all but name, that's still the policy, is it not? Someone joked darkly that we talk about COVID, not CV Right, not CV. Oh my gosh, I didn't even yeah. think of that. You know, I think that the what we mean by that phrase, mm-hmm. those are at least the, the adjectives. Ideally, that's what you want. Describing denuclearization, you want it to be all those things. Um, when you get into expert discussions of what denuclearization looks like, irreversible, for example, sometimes becomes metaphysically almost impossible mm-hmm. because if they've done it once, they can do it again. Right. Unless you remove every scientist with, with a nuclear physics degree. Yeah. Complete can be problematic because, and we still use complete, but the North Koreans can say, aha, you agreed to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Mm. Well, guess what complete means from our perspective? That right. means we can't be touched by any U.S. nuclear capability. So now we better talk about Guam and we better talk about all these things. And I think CVID has outlived its purpose. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we can retire it as a phrase, just like probably the six-party talks. We can retire that, even though those parties getting together to talk is a good thing. Mm. And there may be a time to, to bring back the substance of it. But you know, just like when Beijing would keep calling for the six-party talks, I think that outlived its utility in the same way I think harping on CVID at this point. I mean, my own view is we don't need to throw out denuclearization as the ultimate objective of our side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, actually, this has been, I think, glossed over a little bit too much uh, because we didn't make enough concrete progress. But it was good that Kim Jong-un agreed to denuclearization. He hadn't done that, Mm. you know, and that came out of 2018 is is, uh, positively affirming, yeah, I share that goal. So they're not, you know, there's, I I think the whole debate about you have to recognize North Korea as a nuclear state. Actually, we keep saying they demand to be recognized. They are not even demanding recognition as a nuclear state. You know, I'd say, yeah, that's our, one of our, and probably from a U.S. perspective, uh, it is the top ultimate objective. Um, but now, how are we going to get there? What does progress look like? What are we going to do on our side? How are we going to sequence this? What are the roles that all the different parties are going to play? That's the real substance of it. So obviously, we want to move along some process of North Korea uh, giving up its nuclear and, and certain kinds of missile capabilities. How are we going to get there? Let me get to the general here. What do you think? Um, should we stick to that uh, policy or should the U.S.? Stick to that policy of denuclearization? Yes. But as John just alluded, mm. there are many aspects to this goal that is really uh, unrealistic. The aspect that I have is I can't understand why North Korea would not use what they already have. We think that they have maybe 60 warheads. Let's just say that, let's just assume they have only 10, mm-hmm. right? Why can't they say, okay, I'm not going to make any more nuclear warheads. And you can come by and just, you know, check wherever you want. Even with that one statement, I think Kim Jong-un will get 50% or more of what he needs or wants. And then with this 10 nuclear warheads, how long will it take to achieve, you know, CVID? 10 years? 20 years? 50 years? The answer is we will never know. Mm. That means Kim Jong-un, even if we went to every place that we wanted to, we would never be 100% sure. 
that means he has his nuclear deterrent. Right, because you never and, know. Yeah. It's an insurance policy. And, and you know, he's not going to live over 100. Mm-hmm. So he's he's got everything that he wants. I don't... I can't understand why he is not making a deal. So you think that it's actually North Korea is not being strategic enough about this? Yeah, I mean, why can't he think that, hey, I've reached all my goals. Right. I can. I now have nuclear weapons, but I think he realizes he can't eat it, right? Mm. So why can't he trade a couple of them for food and other stuff that that he needs to maintain his uh, foothold on his people? Uh, I, I, I want to bite my tongue for saying that, but, you know, I, I just can't understand why he's not thinking more strategically. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it could be, you know, we got to get the process back and that is something that, that can happen. I mean, because I think you can make uh, what I always try to do is imagine I'm in the room, the Politburo or wherever they have their real conversations and try to come up with a compelling argument to Kim Jong-un, no, we really should do this. This really is in our, like, this is, this makes sense, you know, and- Gulag for you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a way to test our arguments on their ultimate audience. And and just as you laid it out, you know, I think you could make that argument to his face and it, there's a path to do that, you know? Uh, so that was kind of on my radar for 2018. I mean, when things were really moving and when Trump was moving and Moon was moving, I, I did think- and we were having those discussions about the realm of possibility of what, what could happen. And um, who knows? I think we could get back to that kind of place. I mean, it all crashed and burned in Hanoi and, and kind of the nice thing about how leaky uh, the, the Trump world is. Mm. Uh, we, Thank you, we John know we have a de- And the North Koreans talked about it as well. So we have multiple versions. I think we have a decent understanding of what that negotiation you know, was about. You know, to your point, he was not saying, okay, I'll give you Yongbyon and do you want a bomb? You know, because I'm sure that will be impressive. But is that within the realm of possibility? Of He's also young and he's probably thinking, I'm going to string this thing out for quite a while. So I'll start with Yongbyon from his perspective. I think from a North Korean perspective, that's a big give. But then, you know, year three might be along the lines of something uh, you're suggesting. I'm going to uh, jump in there because uh, we've got uh, 20 minutes left and I'm going to spend... 10 minutes each on what the next four years under President Trump and President Biden could look like in terms of North Korea policy. But I do want to encourage both of you to uh, write this exact idea down about uh, you, you know your strategic advice to Kim Jong-un. Write it down on the back of a postcard because it's got to be short uh, and, and we'll find a way to get someone to ferry it up to uh, Pyongyang and see if, uh, if Kim Jong-un can have a look at it. Great idea. Yeah, I love Put it. it in a balloon. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually do know a guy with a line on balloons. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's do uh, President Trump first. Let's assume that he's won uh, a re-election. He's got four more years. The first four years under Donald Trump certainly saw a roller coaster of uh, threats and meetings and stony silences. What could we expect from the next four years, and what should we hope from? More summitry? Uh, could Trump visit Pyongyang? Should he? This is tough, Jacko. I got to be honest, my mind draws a bit of a blank when I'm asked this question in general, and but also specifically with regard to North Korea, because I feel like Trump has has kind of shot the bullets that he had. I'm someone who, just to be very open about it, you know, in terms of my own politics, I'm not of the Trump school, but I was someone who publicly praised mm. along the way and and retrospectively will still mm-hmm. 
uh, praise certain, I mean, give credit to things that the administration did and actually specifically that Donald Trump did that I think were uh, right. However, I mean, for me, the, the first moment where I thought, well, where does this go now is when he got back from Singapore and said the Trump, the, the threat is removed. Right. It's over. You know, and uh, so, okay, well, where do you go from there? It's and like then, a mission accomplished sort of statement. That's right. premature, wasn't it? That's right. And then by Hanoi, where he kind of walks out with a shrug, and yeah. he's obviously, he had lost interest. And no lunch. He had lost interest. And so, I, you know, I have extremely low expectations of what we could see over four years. The North Koreans, I think, have really given up on a process with the Trump administration. So I think that, you know, they've kept, they've kept the, the relationship between Kim and Trump open. And I think they might do some more theater sort of along the lines of the June 2019 Panmunjom kind of thing. I mean, the most superficial, pure theater, mm. you know, yeah, at least at Hanoi and Singapore, there was some substance to the theater. So we could have a little bit more of that just to kind of sustain the optics. But uh, I, I would have such low expectations of, of what it would mean for the next four years. And I, you know, I think... Um, Kim is, it's tough to know how long Corona is going to last. Mm. And, you know, right now they're in total lockdown mode, but they can survive this. And I think they can also wait out four years of Trump is not that long, uh, for Kim. I think he's actually, in my view, getting a little bit more patient. So I don't think he's going to have all this anxiousness about, I got to do something with the, uh, with the Trump administration. And then the last thing I'll say is four more years of Trump is going to would, uh, take such a toll on the U.S. ROK alliance, going back to some things we talked about earlier, that, you know, if you're, if you're Kim Jong-un and his advisors for whom the alliance is inherently threatening, and one of, one of the things you work on is, you know, weaken that alliance between your adversaries, while these are still adversarial relationships, they can just step back and just let it, you know, let the wrecking ball go to work. And so by not lifting a finger, if they're patient, I mean, strategic patience, North Korean style, you could sit back and watch just four years of uh, damage mm. to that alliance, which is something I would expect. General John, uh, your thoughts? I would see a re-election of Mr. Trump as a referendum of support by the American people to all of his policies. I'm not sure if the American people realize this, but I, that's how I would see it. Mm. I think there's a good segment of the Korean population, especially the progressives, who think that Mr. Trump will be supportive of, of a deal with North Korea. But I must be honest in saying that I think this uh, belief comes from the fact that the Koreans, these Koreans, believe that Trump is gullible enough to make a deal that uh, is not in the best interests of the United States or the world in the long term, but looks really good. So um, for Mr. Trump to be reelected uh, for inter-Korean uh, relations, it seems uh, there's a good segment of South Koreans who believe that it'll be good for inter-Korean relations, but for the wrong reasons. For the security side, uh, there's going to be a lot of tension about the cost-sharing uh, issue. I think uh, Koreans need to be very wary of the fact that this might be more of a bluff than we, than we imagined, mm. and that it could have serious consequences, uh, such as the withdrawal that you mentioned. And it's not just about money as well. There's a whole new policy that's being uh, 
for, for formulated within the U.S. government about uh, forces abroad. So all of these factors are being uh, weighed in, and I think that uh, four more years of Mr. Trump could be quite theatrical, as you said, uh, for the Koreans. Now, what about uh, President Moon? He's still got another year and a half or so uh, if President Trump is re-elected. So what should he be doing differently under four more years of Donald Trump? Well, I guess uh, Mr. Moon can uh, pr pursue his policy for better inter-Korean relations uh, with the same person that he's been dealing for, for the past four years, which is probably better for him than rather you know, starting anew. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, we all have to understand that the United States and the Republic of Korea is not a dictatorship. You can't do, one man cannot do what he wants. So I think um, Mr. Trump, even if he is reelected, even if he does want to make a deal, uh, there, are, there will be other opinions within his administration as well as the Moon administration. So uh, it's not going to be that easy. Perhaps President Moon should uh, suggest uh, a game of golf on the uh, Kumgangsan golf course uh, with Kim Jong-un. You know, they could yeah, do a, it, uh, it might really work. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think another factor in this would be, uh, as the general says, these are not dictatorships. But I think one thing we would see in a second Trump administration, in any second administration, you've got a lot of turnover of personnel and yes. people naturally uh, who've been around for a while leave. And I can see ways in which that, again, is quite damaging in terms of removing some of the speed bumps and roadblocks. You know, there are people who have dealt specifically with Korea policy and Asia in the, in the NSC, uh, in the State Department. I mean, is someone like Steve Began going to stick around, who well, we all like? He's, he's, you know, he's whatever you think of the policy. Yeah. Uh, he's he's obviously a professional, responsible steward of it. You know, does he stick around uh, here? I think it's. I think the ambassador earlier, Harris, said he'd be leaving at some point in November. Uh, I think Sorry, he's the, the ambassador would or Steve Beganwood. Uh, ambassador Harris. I don't know if that's true. I saw that a while ago uh -huh. in the media. But again, that would be a natural thing you to expect. Right. And you know, I think he's someone who, despite all the all the turbulence around it, ended up as someone who who really has been again a steward of the the. The relationship and actually the alliance and trying to, you know, despite being told get $5 billion out of the South right. Koreans has really, you know, worked to maintain a level relationship in, in ways. And what would what would the future, you know, of all these positions be if if Trump interprets this as, wow, I won. OK, everyone wants, you know, now I'm really going to do everything I wanted to do. Right. Again, he has said very clearly, we often don't listen. We only listen to the North Korea love letter parts of what he says about Korea. He talks about South Korea a lot. And he talks about pay up or we're out of there. Mm. You know, he has prepared his base, which is he governs to his base. They're going to reelect him if he elects, if, if he wins. And he's told them what he wants to do with this relationship. And he might have, in a second term, fewer checks on that. And he needs to keep up theater. He needs to do dramatic, interesting things. I don't think the North Koreans are going to play with him. I, I, I do not think Kim Jong-un wants four more years of Donald Trump. 
We've got a minute left in this segment. How are we on... Uh, so what's the current status of the burden-sharing agreements uh, negotiations? It, 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 they failed last year. Is it still stalled? I mean, what's going on? It's still in limbo. Limbo. So I, I think the last count was that the United States... Uh, I can't remember the number. One point, just short of $2 billion. Mm, down from the five. Yeah. And the Korean position is a 13% increase, which is... Just over nine hundred million dollars. Ah, so uh, there's a significant gap there. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But uh, is American forces worth two billion dollars? I think so. Mm. I'm just pissed off at the way that the United States. Well, I'm just angered at the way that you know President Trump asked. Mm. It was like threatening us and insulting us. If he has, if he asked us nicely. I think he would have gotten my support. Uh, And and that's something that I think Korea and uh, Germany and Western Europe have in common right now, isn't it? That uh, Trump's uh, handed out bills left, right, and center to various alliance partners. Yeah, but Jocko, you have to be fair. I mean, don't compare us with the European states. We did uh, our commitments, uh, defense spending, you know, 2.3% of our GDP, 10% or more of our national budget goes to defense. It's not as if we don't, you know, commit to our own defense and to better the conditions, security conditions on the Korean Peninsula. We did all of that, and we've been uh, sharing the cost for the U.S. presence here, uh, which the United States government has been saying was fair for the last 20 years, 20, 30 years. And suddenly it now becomes uh, that we're freeloaders. Mm -hmm. That's the part that really hurt. What kind of experts should Biden have on his team to help out with North Korea policy or East Asia policy? That's a good question. I think that, you know, if if Joe Biden pulls this out and wins next week, uh, North Korea is not going to be his top issue, but it is an issue. And uh, I would encourage his people to form a kind of SWAT team, you know, policy review group. Mm -hmm. Some names come to my mind. I mean, someone if he asked me, who should it be? Mm. Uh, General Vince Brooks would be at the top of my list Mm. as someone who could... Form a podcast guest. Yeah, who could lead a team. Uh, I have huge respect for for him and his understanding both of the military realities as well as the political realities. And also someone who pays attention to South Korea, you know, Mm. and gets it, I think. Um, And so I, I, I don't know, I might... Since we're short on time, I might say start with him. Let him pick a team. Okay. I, you know, I got a longer <laughs> list, but he would be the main name I would put forward as someone who could bring that together and do a kind of you know a model would be the the Perry process. Mm-hmm. When Secretary of Defense right. Bill Perry was our led, last podcast yeah, guest. Le, okay, and so he led a review for the second term Clinton administration. It's yeah. generally seen as an excellent model. So I would I would suggest a Brooks review Mm -hmm. to figure out how do we move forward. I see uh, General John nodding along there. Uh, An aide and policy advisor to Joe Biden, Brian McKeon, recently said that Joe Biden would be willing to meet with Kim Jong-un if it was part of an actual strategy that moves us forward on the denuclearization objective. I'm quoting Brian there. Uh, How low should President Biden set that bar, in your opinion, and how much working level groundwork would need to be laid before any such meeting should take place? General John. So I think the if is a really big if here. Mm. So it's not going to be easy. But if I may divert, I think the worst thing that could happen if uh, Biden becomes president is for North Korea to launch a long-range missile, an ICBM. 
that would really uh, make the situation bad. Uh, they've done it before. They made bad decisions. Uh, other countries have made bad decisions, like attacking the United States. A lot of countries don't realize how Americans can be, and they test them by doing these things. Mm. And I hope that North Korea will not do this. Uh, and that is my biggest concern. Uh, John, do you think that um, now that President Trump has met with uh, with Kim Jong-un a few times, that it's not possible to put that genie back in the bottle, that we can't go back to the, the previous, what, almost 70 years of U.S. policy of refusing to meet uh, with North Korean leaders and not treating them as, you know, as a real country? Well, I would frame it differently. I would say now, again, this is where I would give uh, President Trump credit. The, the president's there, uh, so you can do it. Mm. And actually, if you're a Democratic uh, president doing it, it's going to be harder. They'll still try. But it's going to be harder for Republicans to attack you for being weak, since many of them were on record cheerleading for Donald Trump when he right. did it. So th that's important, you know, in a Democratic system is there's some political cover now for a Democrat. And basically, Joe Biden, Biden is harder line on this. Mm. Um, I mean, now he'd be the Nixon in China if, if he well. went and, you know, met with, with Kim Jong-un. So... This is something that, that the Korea watching and policy community is discussing very in, intensely. And, and of course, it was almost surprising. I was surprised that North Korea came up in the debate at such length. And Joe Biden, you know, he went to his talking points, which is the guy's a thug, uh, Kim Jong-un. Yeah, I think that's actually a term of compliment these days. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I would point out, he also called Xi Jinping a thug. Mm. Now... Is he going to not right. have a summit with Xi Jinping? Is he going to refuse to meet? We don't even consider that. That's not even within the realm of possibility, mm. right? And um, I do think that, while it, it's not automatically going to happen that Joe Biden meets uh, Kim Jong-un. I think it's possible it's imaginable in a way that it wasn't before. You know, he can do it now. And I think the minute he gets in office, he will be grateful. May never say it. But he'll be grateful that that door is open, that North Koreans know it can happen. And so you can use that element in your toolbox mm. that the summit is a, is a real possibility and America will do that now. So I think that's the contribution that Trump made. On his way out the Oval Office, President Obama took Donald Trump aside and warned him of the urgency of the nuclear threat that North Korea posed and also told him it would be one of the, the hardest problems he'd have to deal with. What should President Trump tell uh, Joe Biden on his way out the door about North Korea? It'll be in a tweet, first of all. They won't <laughs> actually meet. Write a letter. <laughs> I you know, the thing about Trump is it's pretty much all out there. I mean, really, I'm not sure that there's too much Joe Biden needs to ask. Mm -hmm. uh, and that discussion with, with President Obama was significant because it was a admission on uh, I, I think the, the importance there is, is in the premise of the question. It's important that President Obama felt he had to say that to, to Donald Trump because he was acknowledging we failed on this one, you know. Mm. And I, 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 there's a lot of concern. I share the concern. There's a default where Team Biden and Joe Biden go back to kind of what they're used to. They try to go back to some form of strategic patience. Mm. That would be a terrible mistake. Mm. The world has changed. South Korea is in a different place. It's a different government here that wants to do different things. Uh, and North Korea has changed. You know, I mean, they were dealing with very different. They were the Obama people were dealing with a North Korea going through extreme sensitive process of succession from, 
you know, Kim Jong-il just had a stroke and then the transition to Kim Jong-un. So whereas now Kim Jong-un, like it or not, mm. it, we don't talk about the young and inexperienced Kim Jong-un. The guy's been around right. longer than anyone. He's traveled the world. He's had summits with most many of the nuclear powers. You know, you got to you got to deal with him differently. They could ignore him. And he's improved his capabilities significantly on their watch under the Obama administration and on Trump's watch. And so you have to respect that and figure out how you're going to deal with it. But they cannot go back to the Obama era. That would be a terrible mistake. General John, are you, uh, are you hopeful? I have to be hopeful. Mm. And I hope that uh, people will make good decisions. But as somebody told me a long time ago, in order for something good to happen, all those involved have to be sincere and willing to commit to that. For something bad to happen, it just takes one person mm. of that group to do something wrong. And knowing human nature, I'm hopeful, but I'm very worried. And it's more worrisome for me because I am on the Korean Peninsula. Still, if you're not on the Korean Peninsula, this is a big problem. North Korea proliferates its capabilities. It's not just nuclear weapons. It's conventional weapons, it's cyber capability, and uh, a whole you know, a series of other things that this regime is capable of doing. So we have a big problem that we all need to uh, try to find a, a solution for. And uh, I think we need to understand that it's not just a Korean problem. Mm. Well, and that brings us to the end of our hour together. I have to say, I was really hoping for more fireworks and disagreement between you. I didn't have you shouting at each other or uh, calling each other, you know, Trumpian style names or anything. So. I think it's because I have a crossbow here aimed at <laughs> <laughs> under the under the table. Yeah. Yeah, John can't quite he's, see he's it. He's had his boot on my my foot the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both, uh, Professor John Delury and General John uh, Lieutenant General John Inbom, retired for coming back on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. This episode will go out uh, Tuesday Korea time, which is uh, um, quite a while before we know who the results of or what the results of the US presidential election will be. Uh, so we'll soon know, I guess, in the coming weeks and months, uh, how much of your uh, predictions will come to pass. But yeah, thanks for coming back on the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>